Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings once again. One of the things I like to do on this show, for those of you out there in the Boston radio audience, is to make you aware of other resources so that you can further your own education as you continue to grow and think for yourself about what is really true about this world around us. Where do we really come from? What's the truth of the explanation of what we observe? Those are rather important questions. And so I want to acquaint you just a little bit with a book called Transformed by the Evidence, Testimonies of Leading Creationists, edited by Doug Sharp, who has a Bachelor of Science, and Dr. Jerry Bergman, who has a whole bunch of college degrees. I think he has eight or nine college degrees, including at least two PhDs. The back cover says, This book offers many unique and encouraging viewpoints about the personal impact of the creation perspective. Many people who are strong believers in Jesus Christ and the Bible, but do not have any interest in science, base their faith in Christ on other facets of his word and their personal experiences. They may never have encountered situations where they were tested in this area, and God has blessed them. But for many of us who recount their experiences in this book, the challenges presented by the theory of evolution and the notion that life is billions of years old have become stumbling blocks that were difficult to overcome. At the very least, this experience had created a major test of their faith that prevented them from accepting the creation worldview. This book provides compelling insight into the experience shared by the authors as they addressed this challenging topic. And this book has the accounts of 28 different creationists as they talk about the challenges they faced in their own conversion to that belief system, what they learned along the way, and why they believe what they now believe. Every one of them believes the Bible is the Word of God and is factually true. They believe in a recent creation in six days, as recorded in Genesis. And despite what you might think, it's not because they're ignorant of science. It's not because they don't know the arguments that claim that can't be true. So let me share with you chapter 15, written by Dr. Jean Leitner, DVM. She titled it, Wonders of Creation. Jean was astounded when her evolutionist professor told her that the fossil record did not support the concept of the gradual evolution of life. It was at this point that she realized that belief in evolution had nothing to do with the evidence. Jean's research has contributed much to the understanding of the differences in chromosomes between created kinds. That's the summary statement at the top of the article. Now the actual article begins. I was raised in a nominal Christian home. For several years we attended the same church as my aunt and uncle. There I encountered the gospel and was impressed at how the teaching I received made so much sense in the light of everyday life. I knew that I had been selfish and unkind to my siblings. I knew it was wrong and I didn't want to be a selfish person. I recognized that I needed forgiveness and the power to overcome my selfishness. So during this time, around the age of 10, I accepted Christ as my Savior. I also found God's world amazing, 
I developed a strong interest in science, loved nature shows, and dreamed of being a veterinarian someday. Seeing the wonders in creation further deepened my admiration for God and my desire to please Him. Sometimes there were evolutionary claims in the science materials that I came across. A family member pointed out to me that the theory of evolution contradicted the biblical teaching of creation. When I took high school biology, I wondered what evidence for evolution would be presented in class. We studied homology, which I considered fairly weak circumstantial evidence. Anatomy could be similar because two creatures were related, but it could also be similar because they were intentionally created that way. I remember pondering briefly the idea that life was not created. After lying on my belly in the grass and staring at the detail in a dandelion, I concluded that was a silly notion. The flower was too incredibly intricate in its design. I knew someone far wiser than I must have created dandelions. In college, I took biology, zoology, genetics, biochemistry, and microbiology to prepare for veterinary school. I continued to be in awe of the amazing complexity of life. At the same time, I was surrounded by professors and other students who openly mocked the Bible and Christian beliefs. There were several times when I experienced strong doubts. Once, when I knew I needed to do something I found difficult in order to be honest and please God, I was assailed by doubts. It was as if a voice inside told me that doing that difficult thing was stupid. There was no God. After all, I'd never seen him. Despite this inner turmoil, I chose to do the difficult thing. I reasoned that even though in that moment I felt like God probably didn't exist, I was still going to do what was right, because if he really did exist, I wanted to please him. Fortunately, these times of intense doubt didn't last very long. I could look at the teachings of the Bible, such as on forgiveness or honesty, and see that these were important. If evolution is true... There is no point in forgiving others or being honest when it seems inconvenient. I also could look back at what I learned in class about the incredible complexity in the design of life and know that God must have created it. The study of nature quieted my doubts and transformed me. Throughout my undergraduate studies, I read my Bible regularly and grew in my faith. I was very interested in knowing the truth. Professors would make comments about the overwhelming evidence for evolution, yet I had never learned anything in class that was convincing to me. Since I didn't want to believe a lie, I figured the best course of action was to investigate and find out what they were talking about. I attended several elective classes on evolution. One class that was supposed to show examples of evidence for evolution extensively discussed shifts in the genetics of populations. These were not examples of change supporting the idea of onward-upward evolution. No new body parts were being evolved. We're listening to Dr. Jean Leitner's testimony in her chapter in the book Transformed by the Evidence about how it is that she came to be and remained a creationist even though she studied evolution extensively on the way to becoming a veterinarian. So let's continue with her account. I was in for a big shock when I sat in on a graduate-level class on evolution. The professor, an evolutionist, 
told us that the fossil record didn't really support the concept of gradual evolution of life on Earth. As a result, some scientists had proposed ideas about how evolution occurred in large jumps. He said that the problem with that was that most biologists didn't feel this view was consistent with what they saw in the world around them. So, it had been suggested that life evolved on another planet and was skyrocketed to Earth after major developments had taken place. At this point, I felt like rolling on the ground in laughter. I couldn't believe I had heard this from a science professor at Ohio State University. Why was this science fiction scenario taken seriously? I chose not to laugh, but sat politely in my chair. It was at that point I realized that belief in evolution had nothing to do with the evidence. One thing I did find very puzzling during my undergraduate years was the differences in chromosome numbers between horses, donkeys, and zebras. It seemed to me that chromosome numbers shouldn't be able to change without causing serious problems. In genetics class, we learned that chromosomes line up in pairs at meiosis. If one part of a chromosome moved to another chromosome, the homologous matching regions would bend or twist so that each gene would line up with its mate. Such arrangements should naturally lead to difficulties in meiosis, cell division that results in gametes, that is, egg cell or sperm. So these chromosome changes should make it very difficult for the animal to reproduce. Yet creationists considered all equines to belong to the same created kind in spite of the differing chromosome numbers. It would be years before I had the opportunity to examine the evidence in more detail and come to a satisfying conclusion. I enjoyed veterinary school and continued to be astounded by the extraordinary design in animals as I studied anatomy, physiology, and embryology. I had intended to go into practice after vet school, but when I graduated, I was halfway through a surprise pregnancy. This meant my dream of being a large animal veterinarian was interrupted. I ended up taking a job as a research assistant where I was paid to earn my master's degree. I enjoyed this research position very much. In one class, we were required to read research papers from various journals and decide if the author's conclusions were supported by the research they had completed. This was a real eye-opener for me. I had always assumed scientists were relatively unbiased and that peer review would weed out excessive conjecture. I was astounded by how much opinion was presented in a dogmatic way in a number of papers we read that were published in reputable journals. It seems that the more bold and sweeping the conclusions, the less those conclusions were supported by actual research. I didn't realize it at the time, but this graduate-level course was very important in preparing me for what I was to do in the future. After graduate school, I worked for USDA for just over three years. Then I resigned to stay home and homeschool my four young children. Nearly 15 years later, when my children were more independent and scientific literature had become readily available through the Internet, I went back to digging through the scientific literature. I also began writing for several creationist apologetics organizations. This turned out to be a very rewarding opportunity for me. I had been reading and studying my Bible regularly since late high school. I had found it immensely practical in many areas of life. 
My new research required that I dig into the Bible for relevant information, along with digging into the scientific literature. Since the Bible gives important history that is ignored or rejected by secular scientists, creationists have a source of critical information that can help our understanding of natural history. For example, the Bible clearly states that animals were created by God according to their kinds. Since most kinds of land animals were represented on the ark by only a single pair, we know that the diversity within these kinds was very limited immediately after that point in history. Using this information, we can get a fairly accurate assessment of the amount of variability that has arisen within various kinds since the flood. It was during this time when it became much more obvious how well my graduate work had prepared me for understanding the creation-evolution debate. Evolutionists were commonly claiming one thing or another was evidence for evolution. In reality, the evidence was just explained within an evolutionary framework. The same evidence could be understood within a creationary model just as easily. This is why the evidence had never seemed compelling to me. But my graduate studies took me beyond this point to see where I could see underlying assumptions. When I came across evidence that did not make sense to me, I learned to identify my assumptions and question them. Eventually, I got back to the issue of differing chromosome numbers within created kinds. I was astounded to find out that chromosome numbers within certain species could vary considerably. Even more surprising was that, in many cases, no detectable loss of fertility resulted in those animals. These variations in chromosome number were not from an extra chromosome showing up, as in Down syndrome, or one being lost. Instead, they resulted from one chromosome becoming attached to another or a previously existing chromosome dividing in two. It didn't make any sense to me that accidental rearrangements could occur so frequently and not adversely affect the animal. After all, chromosomes carry the code necessary for the animal to survive and function. Random chopping and rearranging couldn't be a good thing. Finally, I realized that I was thinking like an evolutionist. I was using their assumption that all changes to chromosomes were chance errors. Nothing in the Bible suggests chromosome rearrangements can only result from accidents, a haphazard chopping and pasting back together. The fact that some are harmful had made it easy to assume that all were just accidents. However, when I dug into the scientific literature, the data I found implied that numerous mechanisms must be in place to allow for successful rearrangements. This means there was design involved. Also, since it was common for different chromosome numbers to be characteristic of different species within a genesis kind, it appears likely that these rearrangements serve some useful purpose. I also became interested in mutations in various genes. As a vet, I had assumed that mutations were always accidents, since I knew many of them caused disease. Yet, as I dug into the scientific literature and considered that animals from unclean kinds, such as horses or dogs, would have had a maximum of four alleles, different versions of a gene, between them in the pair preserved on the ark, I realized that a lot of genetic change had occurred in some genes since that time. 
I noticed that sometimes researchers would use statistical methods to show that the mutation patterns were not random. Many just assumed that underlying mutations were random and concluded that the statistics implied selection had occurred. The problem was, often there would be no obvious reason why selection would be strong enough to account for these changes. So the statistics could just as easily have been evidence for non-random mutations. A considerable amount of data suggests that many mutations, changes in the nucleotide sequence of DNA, in animals may be directed. In other words, the DNA sequence was not created to be static and unchangeable. In some cases, God had provided a means for it to change. This brings out the point that even the ideas of creationists are not always as biblically based as we might like. At creation and again after the flood, God told his creatures to reproduce and fill the earth. So certainly he had enabled them to adapt as they do so. Unfortunately, the evolutionary ideas of random mutation and natural selection, which I had accepted as an explanation for all genetic changes since creation, had obscured what is really happening in the world around us. In reality, God, in his infinite wisdom, designed animals to be able to undergo certain genetic changes that would enable them to adapt to a wide range of environmental challenges while minimizing risk. This brought an added excitement back into biology as I saw God's provision in a new way. I recognize that changes can and do occur over time. I also recognize that they are not necessarily accidents. All life was designed to be able to adapt. However, Evolutionists need more than just change to support the idea that life shares common ancestry. A particular pattern of change is necessary. Mutations must be building complexity, or they cannot explain where complexity comes from. This is not what we see when we look at mutations. Instead, mutations that are adaptive tend to erode complexity. The adaptations we see going on today requires that the complexity already be in place and designed to allow for useful changes. The evidence both in the Bible and in nature has clearly transformed my life. It played an important role in drawing me to salvation and inspiring a love for science in my youth. It was important in maintaining and nurturing my faith during college. It continues to provide new insight and direction in my research. The evidence from the intricacies of design in a dandelion to the genetic complexities all points to a wise and powerful creator who cares for his creation. I was transformed from a nominal Christian to a committed, active, Bible-believing Christian. That's the end of Dr. Leitner's chapter in Transformed by the Evidence, where she explains her journey into science all the way to becoming a veterinarian and her reasoning for her continued and strengthened belief that the evidence really shows the Creator God exists and that He designed life to be adaptable. Reading Dr. Leitner's chapter, and especially the portion where she discussed the growing evidence that certain mutations don't appear to be random at all, but rather look like they are planned, reminds me very much of the book by Dr. Lee Spetner titled, Not by Chance. 
which addresses exactly the issue of the origin of information within the DNA. Dr. Carl Whelan's review includes this following statement. Jewish scientist Dr. Lee Spetner's book aims a death blow at the heart of this whole neo-Darwinian story. And what's the neo-Darwinian story? Well, let's listen to how Dawkins, Richard Dawkins himself, expressed it. As the information that encodes for living things on the DNA molecule is copied during reproduction, there are tiny accidental changes, mutations, which are inherited. If one of these enables its possessor to survive better, it will have a better chance of passing on its information, including this change. Such helpful mutations will, it is claimed, gradually accumulate over millions of years, allowing a microbe to become a microbiologist. And as Dr. Whelan notes, the crucial battleground has always been the origin of information, and in this field, Spetner is uniquely qualified to comment. With a Ph.D. in physics from MIT, Spetner taught information and communication theory for years at Johns Hopkins University. In 1962, he accepted a fellowship in biophysics at that institution, where he worked on solving problems in signal-noise relationships in DNA electron micrographs. He subsequently became fascinated with evolutionary theory and published papers concerning theoretical and mathematical biology in prestigious journals such as the Journal of Theoretical Biology, Nature, and the Proceedings of the Second International Congress of Biophysics. The problem with the neo-Darwinian theory is not natural selection. This is a straightforward, easily observable phenomenon, but it cannot of itself create information. The real issue concerns mutations, the alleged source of all new information needed for evolution. With a detailed probabilistic analysis based upon the standard evolutionary mathematics of such authorities as Gaylord Simpson and Fisher, Spetner shows that the chance of getting the required mutations for such cumulative selection is just way too small. Furthermore, grand-scale evolution, protozoa to pelicans, pomegranates, and politicians, would require a massive increase in information over time. If this happened by an accumulation of mutations, such mutations must, on average, add information. Spetner, whose level of technical knowledge of his subject is well in advance of the average biologist, shows that on theoretical grounds, this is completely precluded. He then examines the classic textbook situations that have been used to tell students that since adaptation by mutation and natural selection is happening in front of our eyes, this process only needs time in order to perform all the miracles credited to evolution. Spetner shows in exquisite but clear detail that where these changes are by genuine point mutations, rather than by the switching on of existing genes, they are all, without exception, losses of information. In a memorable turn of phrase, he says that anyone who thinks that an accumulation of mutations, information-losing processes, can lead to macroevolution, a massive net gain of information, quote, is like the merchant who lost a little money on every sale, but thought he could make it up on volume, end quote. I personally highly recommend Dr. Spetner's book, Not By Chance. I remember reading it perhaps 15 years ago, 
And toward the end, he introduced the subject of observational information seeming to point to the non-random nature of mutations. And I'm pretty sure that's the first time I had heard that, and it stopped me in my tracks. Because if mutations are occurring in a non-random, in an actually directed and planned way, then the adaptability of life is enormously beyond what we may have thought it was. Being a software programmer and having worked upon self-modifying code many years ago, I understand just how difficult it is to get something like that correct, which does nothing more than put me in more awe of the creator himself. Our most complex software and computer systems simply pales in complexity to what goes on in a bacteria cell. Give that some thought as you consider whether this creator is worth pursuing. See creation mythomiracle.com. <laughs>